Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Moyes Jiwa. Dr. Jiwa is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Health Design. He's also the host of their podcast by the same name. He is Associate Dean and Professor of Health Innovation at the Melbourne Clinical School, University of Northern Dane. Dr. Jiwa is also a practicing general practitioner in Melbourne, Australia. We discuss his new book, The Art of Doctoring, in our conversation where he says, to focus on the small changes, especially in your sphere of influence, because these small changes can actually lead to a very big difference. It is Dr. Jiwa's mission to help good doctors become great doctors. So what are these small changes? In this conversation, Dr. Jiwa shares his revolutionary yet simple approach to practicing medicine based on his research findings for his book. He explains why practicing medicine is like being on stage and acting in a play. He also shares the lessons he's learned from his multicultural upbringing that ultimately make him a better doctor. His book and his approach to doctoring is really an expression of what it means to be a better, more empathetic human being. In this conversation, you'll realize that Dr. Jiwa is insightful, thoughtful, and kind. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And as always, kindly leave a review. So, without further ado, I bring you Dr. Moyes Jiwa. Moyes Jiwa, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Baktash. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you. And I wanted to speak with you because the work that you're doing at the Journal of Health Design and the book that you wrote, The Art of Doctoring, is really about the patient experience and how good doctors can become better at doctors. And so I wanted you to come on this podcast and share your perspective. So would you share the main message of your book and the work that you do as a practicing physician? I think the main message uh, in the book and in a lot of what I do is small change, big difference. How can we empower ourselves? How can we use our agency to make a difference to the people that we work for. And I say that very deliberately, the people that we work for. Uh, we, we don't work for ourselves. We work to serve others, particularly in, in the business of doctoring or in the ecosystem of doctoring. I think you used that word before in a previous conversation we had. In that system, we are working for others. And what can we do when we know that you know we're employed by somebody else when we know that a lot of the infrastructure around us, the systems, the policies are set by somebody else, it can feel very disempowering to be working and being expected to make a difference in people's lives unless and until we bring ourselves to our jobs. Yeah, your approach to the patient experience is actually quite curious. And so I'm wondering if you could elaborate on your findings and what you've learned in this process that would be helpful for people listening to this podcast? I think the first thing that occurred to me in the course of my training was actually we have the potential to do an awful lot of harm in medicine. Not, not deliberately, but you know, a lot of the technical fixits that we bring to the patients cause harm. So if you look at the cost in the United States or, or in fact anywhere in the world, the cost of what they call iatrogenic, doctor-introduced harm, doctor-caused harm, it's, it's huge. It's almost as much as the good that we do in terms of the 
cures and the treatments that we offer patients. So in fact, we need to be very humble about our role in medicine. And when you look back at where the history of medicine, you realize that a lot of the uh, doctor's role is a socially determined role. In other words, we, we take on this persona of healer in order to help people themselves to make life better for themselves, to get better. And in fact, I think I said mm-hmm. to you at one point in a previous conversation that placebos, smarties and tablets that have no useful uh, or active component actually work in 60% of cases, no matter what's wrong with you. They work in 60% of cases. We don't quite know why or how, but they do. And in fact, the most powerful placebo that I know of is the doctor, him or herself. And that is where I came to uh, at the start of my career. And then for the last 30, 35 years, that's how I've been, how I've been practicing. Now, that's a remarkable statistic. The placebo effect essentially is used to heal 60% of patients. Is that correct? It can be effective in 60% of cases, and no matter what's wrong with that particular person. And this is not new. This We've known this for many, many decades. In fact, you know, as I said to you before, uh, the most accomplished doctor of all time was Imhotep of Egypt, who never prescribed an antibiotic or ordered a CT scan or an MRI or anything else. And yet this man was glorified by his patrons, by his patients, and deified, and and there are statues to this extraordinary person in all of history. That's fascinating. So let's unpack that. What does that say about what it means to be human and the disconnect between the medical industry and patient care? What it says to us as humans, I think, is that when I'm in pain, when I'm suffering, when I'm in need, I actually respond extraordinarily well to another human being looking me in the eye, touching me in the arm and saying, it's going to be all right. I see you. I hear you. I hear your pain. I hear your suffering. And as a consequence of that, we we respond in a way that our bodies tend to almost heal themselves. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. Clearly, if I'm lying there, uh, having had a road traffic accident with a fractured leg, you're not going to do the same thing in those circumstances. But the number of circumstances in which it doesn't make a difference how you're being approached by your physician are so far and so few and far between that they're almost irrelevant in the business of doctoring. Oh, that's a remarkable insight. And uh, it makes so much sense. I mean, we as human beings are social creatures and social animals. We need that sense of connectivity with others in order to feel human, to feel a sense of belonging, in order to ultimately find a sense of purpose. So in the context of COVID-19, how does this work? It doesn't work, Maktash. It doesn't work. And we are going to come out of this not only with patients who died from the virus, but people whose health has suffered extraordinarily because they've not had access to that which you know we were describing earlier, to the art of doctoring. We respond so much to those uh, soft touches, those connections that we make with people, that when those are denied to us, we do end up actually suffering harm, actual physical harm. 
And we're going to find patients whose diabetes is out of control, whose hypertension is out of control, depression has deepened, whose chronic illnesses are so much worse uh, because they've not had this opportunity to connect with people. It's true. And what's interesting about the coverage of COVID-19 worldwide is that you know, the numbers that are being shown are, are numbers related to death. And that's terrible in itself. But what's not being shown is the second, third, fourth level implications of what it means to be quarantined, isolated, socially distant from those that we quite literally need in our lives. And so what do you think COVID-19 is actually showing us? Yeah, it's, it's an, a very, very difficult problem. And, you know, I would be the last person to suggest we break any of those uh, social distancing rules at this point in time. Lives will be lost if we don't maintain that social distancing and don't tolerate it for any longer. But what I am saying is what COVID is teaching us is what's important in healthcare. It's underlining it. Mm. It's underscoring it. You know, there's an exclamation mark behind the, the sentence around COVID, which says what this is teaching us is the things that really matter in life. It really matters to shake somebody's hand. And I don't really care what somebody says about that. It matters that you shake somebody's hand. It matters that you make eye contact. It matters that you see them, that you hear them. And that, as you've said so eloquently in your podcast with us, um, Baktash, that you pause, you pause to give them a chance to tell you what's bothering them. You have a remarkable story, Moyes, and I would love for you to share how you got to where you are today. Can you tell us what your origin story is and how you got to, um, to Australia? So I was born in East Africa. I was born in a place called Nairobi in Kenya, where my family had been living for generations. And around the 1970s, uh, they decided that it was time that we considered our futures because Africa did not seem to to want to welcome the Asians in that part of the world for many, many reasons, uh, some of them good and some of them not so good. But anyway, the decision was made that we, for the sake of our futures, would need to, to move. And I ended up, or we ended up, as a family living in the Republic of Ireland. We flew to initially to the UK and then from there took a flight to Dublin, where I was raised. I was, so I was raised in a little town called Newbridge in County Kildare, in the Republic of Ireland. And um, I think I said to you that Ireland gave me three wonderful things. It gave me a fantastic education. She gave me one of her daughters and she gave me this funny accent that you hear. Uh, so, <laughs> and within, in fact, within six years of arriving in Ireland, I was in medical school at Trinity College Dublin, where I came under the influence of people like James McCormick, who was professor of community medicine in Dublin. And, uh, you know, this is a, an amazing man who had a, a very healthy, uh, cynical view about what medicine had to offer. And he, was, he used to say to us at lectures, you know, you've got somebody who's got hypertension and you put them on antihypertensives. Now, yes, you treat that. Epidemiologically, it makes sense to treat somebody with antihypertensives. But please remember, he would say, that you're going to make him impotent, that you're giving, going to give him side effects, that you're going to make him ill, and you're going to give him a label that says, you are not whole, you are a patient, you've got hypertension. 
There's something wrong with you. And he's going to have to live with that or she's going to have to live with that for her whole life. And bear that in mind when you make those huge decisions in the name of science, but without actually necessarily seeing the person that you've just labeled as sick. And so I took that with me and I realized very quickly that family medicine is where I wanted to be because I got to see the whole patient, the whole journey, the family, the grandparents, the neighbors, the streets where they lived, the shops where they shopped. And from that, you got a really good picture of these people. And you're able to tailor their treatment and walk with them through whatever the illness was. And it was a great honor. For, for many years, I was a family doctor in the UK, having trained in the UK and live and worked in the NHS, the wonderful NHS, which was free to all who needed it when they needed it. And therefore, we were able to really make a difference to those people's lives because they didn't need to think about what it was going to cost to come to the doctor. And we had long-term relationships with them, records that went back decades. You know, they said from birth to death, from cradle to grave, all hours, 24 hours a day, we were providing care for these people. And that was my induction into medicine. And then, of course, moved to Australia, again, in search of a better life because the NHS was becoming gradually privatised and it is becoming privatised. And we wanted a, a good future for our, our boys and Australia has been very welcoming and, you know, if nothing else, it's got better weather. Given your remarkable journey from Kenya to Ireland to the UK and now to Australia, I have to ask, is your desire to have a family practice in any way representative of you wanting to find home in your journey? What I mean to say is a family practice is very, it's a very intimate place where people find a sense of belonging with their doctor. And that doctor gets to know very intimate details about their life and their family's life. And so is there any connection between having a family practice and having this semblance or this wanting of finding home in your journey? I'm not sure that that is the truth. Uh, I certainly am very far from home in, in many, many ways. I come from a very different community from the community I now live in. We had to adapt, constantly adapt. And in many ways, we had to adapt in ways that required us to shed a lot of our, a lot of what we took to be true. We had to change how we viewed the world. Our perspective changed. And along with the accent came a lot of other changes in my life. You know, you can imagine a huge cultural change, having gone from, from living this very, very privileged life in Africa as one of the classes of people who had the money to live in luxury in Africa, to living in a small Irish country village and being seen as very strange mm. in many ways because we, we looked different, we sounded different, we ate very different food, etc. But I'm not sure that's what's driving my vocation as a family doctor. The vocation as a family doctor came from a much deeper place than that. It came from being vulnerable, being feeling really vulnerable. Uh, not in a way of belonging, but feeling vulnerable in 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 ways that made me feel, uh, made, made me realize what it is like for somebody when they walk into an environment that is completely alien to them, completely alien. So they they walk into a clinic that is 
cold and unwelcoming and where people talk a very different language, where the social mores are quite different, all kinds of different things about that environment. And they bring themselves as somebody with needs, somebody with pain, somebody with symptoms, somebody who's frightened about what the future holds. I think part of my experience has helped me to understand what it's like to be in that situation and to make mm. that different for others. In our initial conversation, you shared a remarkable story about how your family was stripped of its sense of humanity. Would you be willing to share that story with us now? Yeah, I think I did mention a particular event to you which occurred en route from Nairobi to Dublin. So when we were going from Nairobi to Dublin, it was the winter of 1975, and somehow Heathrow Airport was covered in fog. So we had to divert, the the flight had to divert to Birmingham, which meant we had to actually disembark on UK soil before getting the bus to Heathrow Airport from Birmingham, which is a good bit north of London, and then take the the connecting flight to the Republic of Ireland. So we had to come through immigration. And as a consequence of having to disembark, the UK authorities decided that we needed to be put through a medical uh, examination to be seen as fit to actually enter the UK, even though we weren't actually technically going to remain in the UK. So there was myself, my brother and my mom on our way to meet my father who was in in Dublin. And the immigration, the process was frankly inhuman. So we had to strip completely naked in front of this doctor who was sitting behind a desk. And there was a female immigration officer sitting, standing to to the other side of the desk I don't remember him actually touching us, but he basically was inspecting us like you might inspect sheep. And then, of course, they were looking at all the documents that uh, we'd we'd produced. And my mom didn't have a passport. She had a travel pass. Uh, It's because I think her passport had been lost somewhere in her childhood. And there was a lot of uncertainty about whether they would allow us to travel at that point onward to the Republic of Ireland. And I remember the guy saying to my mum, well, you know, in Ireland, they won't recognise this document, but, you know, okay, you can't stay here, so we'll just let you get on the flight to Dublin. Big heave sigh of relief, all three of us. I'm 11, my brother is nine. My mum is travelling outside of Kenya for the first time. And that sense of vulnerability was profound. I remember it, I almost remember it like it was yesterday, what that was like to feel that exposed, that naked, that vulnerable to feeling, for, for all we knew, they would put us back on the flight in Birmingham, back to Nairobi. It had been a, a long flight, we were jet lagged, tired. So yeah, I think that was probably one of the seminal experiences that made me really realize what it's like to be um, vulnerable. Yeah, that tale was quite harrowing. And so when you're in that position with your family, where quite literally your humanity is stripped of you, how does that experience and or the memory of that experience shape you in particular as the way in which you've kind of 
express yourself and show up for your patients on a daily basis, how does that shape you? I think it could have gone a number of ways. It could have gone a bad way or it could have gone the way it eventually did go for me. And and that was to really understand what it was like to feel like that and to see other people in that situation. I think I was very lucky in that I was only 11 at the time and I was 17 when I ended up in medical school. So I was in a very formative point in my life. And as a 17-year-old, I was still able to assimilate. I was still able to make something positive out of an experience like that. And so my formative years in medical school with people like James McCormack, and there were a number of others, really helped me to make that experience something as a positive force in my life uh, and to see people in the way that I think I can see them now, which is as vulnerable people who need, who respond so well to being treated with compassion. In the wake of COVID-19 and so much misinformation and hysteria surrounding this pandemic, what does that mean for you and your family practice? What are the implications of that to you in your daily life? Are patients calling you for all hours of the day with questions, wanting to see you and hear from you? How does this play out for you on your day-to-day basis? It's been interesting because what has happened in family medicine in particular is that the number of people who who are reaching out to us has actually dropped quite significantly. And it's dropped because the testing centers are not based in general practice. They're based in some of the hospitals. So patients are obviously going direct or were going direct to the hospitals. The patients who are coming to us either have not got symptoms of COVID or are brave enough, they see themselves as brave enough to come in to see a doctor at a time when it is regarded as better not to come in and be in that place where patients are likely to appear and where you are likely to put yourself at risk. General practice here has organized itself very well in some ways because we've got very good distancing measures, we've got very good protective measures for both doctors and patients. So it is actually relatively safe to come in. But of course, in the public side, it's regarded as a a difficult place to be. And the public have been very kind to doctors in the sense of saying, we don't want to bother you at a time when you are likely to be very, very busy. And of course, that hasn't happened. I have to be honest, hasn't happened in my practice. It may have happened for many of my other colleagues in rural parts of Australia, but it hasn't happened here. Now, let's unpack that. What's the rationale behind that happening in rural parts of Australia? So the rationale is that in Australia, general practice is not set up the way it is set up in the UK, in the NHS, where it's cradled to grave care 24 hours a day. It is set up very much as a fee-for-service type situation. So I often see patients who I may never see again or who've seen four different doctors. So I sat on a plane beside somebody some years ago who said, well, I go to one doctor for my cervical smear. That's my pap smear test. I go to another one when I need a certificate because I'm not feeling well enough to go to work. I go to another one 
when I want to take the kids who've got, uh, who need antibiotics. And then I go to this fourth guy when I'm really worried about something. So it's not really the same thing. And that's where the challenge comes in terms of the art of doctoring for me, because we now have to literally compete for patients. You have to compete to provide a service that people want to keep coming back to. You know, it's, it's really odd that people will go to the same hairdresser before they go to the mm. same doctor, which is weird. You know, I had somebody mm. who, who came some weeks ago and said, you know, I've got, I've got an upper respiratory tract infection. I examined this patient and I went to the whole history and I said, there isn't a treatment for this that works, a cure. Antibiotics are not going to help. This is a viral illness. What you need is acetaminophen and some cough lozenges and give it time and in a week's time you will feel a lot better. And this person was seeing me for the first time and their comment to me was really startling because they said, I've just paid $60 to be here and all you've done is give me a certificate and prescribe paracetamol, acetaminophen. And I said, well, actually what you're not seeing, it was a wake-up call to me, what you're not seeing is the 30 years of experience that allows me to give you advice that is evidence-based. And it occurred mm. to me that what might have been missing there is that connection. And maybe, maybe I missed something. Maybe there was something she was trying to tell me which I didn't pick up on, and this was her reaction to it. So I guess given my interest in the connection, it was an interesting and somewhat jarring experience that we don't always get it right. Yeah, I think that's right. And quite literally, that's why it's called a practice, because you're practicing to get better. And as medical practitioners, in order to become as efficient as possible, you're trained to recognize patterns. And in that space, what ends up happening is doctors may, as a default, start having less of a sense of empathy for their patients. But that said, that's where I think your practice and your approach is quite remarkable and makes all the difference. But that said, patients do come see you with their own baggage, their own semblance of the problems that they have. They come to you with a different attitude, so to speak, right? Yeah, it is. It very much is. And it, it kind of reflects the conversation you and I had a little while ago, where what you've got to understand is the culture that the person is coming from. And, I, and that was very much at play in this particular consultation. It was a cultural issue. There was, on this person's part, an expectation of something else, maybe an injection or, or something that only a doctor can prescribe or something that tangible that she could take away from that meeting. And for me, it was very much about giving good, solid, evidence-based treatment. And there was a disjunction between my reproach and her expectations. So we had to pause. And, and in fact, the consultation then went on for a little bit longer and I explored a little more about what she was, what she was saying and what she meant by that. And we did come to a, an understanding in the end. I have to say it must feel wonderful to some extent whereby you quite literally are perceived as a healer when you're a physician, when people come to you with their ailments and their problems and the pains in which they feel, 
and they seek that guidance from you in order to alleviate that suffering. But at the same time, physicians, I would argue, the onus of, of that relationship is on them, quite literally to meet the patient where they are, to meet them where they are. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you're right. I kind of framed it slightly differently at some yeah. point in the last little while. And I, and in fact, it's in the book. And I talk about the whole thing being a scene from a play. And you have two actors on stage. You've got the stage, like you see in theaters. You know, it's a room. Mm. It's got mm. desks and it's got chairs. It's got props, paraphernalia that you see in doctor's offices, stethoscopes and tendon hammers and vibration forks and whatever else. You've got the script, what each those people say. And in fact, in many ways, when we are in a doctor's clinic, it's amazing how stereotypical our questions and answers are. What can I do for Mm. you? It's the worst Mm. headache I've ever had in my life. Does anything make it better? You know, you can expect these questions. You can, and there's, that's a whole script. So there's the script and then there's the action, what you do. And the action includes not just what you're actually doing physically in terms of writing prescriptions or whatever else. It's also about the examination. And the examination is a key part of the action. It's going to determine the outcome of that particular play. You need to make sure that you've got the right genre for that particular play. If that act, that piece of theater is to work. And in fact, in many ways, when I'm thinking about this, I'm also, as you know, a medical educationist. I often think that it would be far more useful for me to get a director of a movie to come and watch my students perform this action in the safety, uh, almost rehearse this in the safety of a classroom before they go out into practice. You know, how do you deal with the angry person? How do you deal with the sad person? How do you deal with person who's come from another culture where the expectation is that you'll get an injection and it'll make you feel better? How do you deal with somebody mm. you're going to give some very bad news to? You know, I've, I've had to mm. tell a woman at the age of 37 that she was going to die of breast cancer within the, before the, the, her son's first birthday. How do you do that? You cannot but prepare yourself and prepare yourself really well for how you, Mr. Actor, one of the two in the room, is going to respond or it's going to not go well. And we're not just talking about technical stuff here. We're talking about what you say, how you say it, where you are in your head, how you're looking at this person, what you're focusing on. Are you looking at the computer? Are you looking into her eyes? Are you looking somewhere else? Did you interrupt her right in the middle of saying something really important? Do you recognize Mm. that you interrupted her in the middle of saying something really important? What does she think about the way you look? What does she Mm. think about the smells in this room and the sounds and the posters? There's so many posters in this room. What does she think about that? These are all important. Mm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. What's interesting is what you're describing her bedside manners and emotional intelligence. And what's interesting about this space is that once have people have acquired a sense of specialization, quite literally the skills that make them who they are, everything else is EQ, right? And that's essentially why your book and your work is deeply important because it allows medical practitioners to better understand how to have a more 
safe and trusting relationship with their patients. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I, I appreciate that. And I think what I would be saying is to some budding doctors is you are going to take on a persona, right? Get out of your own head and of your own importance. Don't become the persona. Recognize that you are that persona and reflect on how that persona interacts with this other human being because they need you to be something quite special in their lives. And if you're going to be that something quite special, you need to be prepared to see it from the outside. I really love that. Now, Moyes, I want to be respectful of your time because you're out there saving the world. So I'd like to ask all my guests one final question. And the question is this, Moyes, what is your message for the world? Uh, my message for the world is small change, big difference. By small change, I mean that we cannot change the political climate. We cannot change public health policy. We cannot change a whole bunch of things. We cannot even change how the day is going to unfold. But what we can change is how we turn up in that place. And that may be a small change. It might be the color of your shoelaces. It might be the smile on your face. It might be the small act of kindness that you did on your way into work. It might be that you decided to walk in somebody else's shoes. That one person, that not, not everybody, that one person you're going to see today, that's the difference. And that one small change can lead to a massive difference to how things unfold. And I have a lot of faith that it does do that. And I've seen it for myself in my own life. Moyes, that's wonderful. Thank you for that message and thank you for the work that you do. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.